How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the Life's Key 3 podcast, where we talk about the three keys that are absolutely essential to a life of earthly excellence and sacred significance. And what are those keys? They are learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You know, sometimes we kind of get those things a little switched around where we love ourselves, we learn about God, and we live connected. And there's a couple of different ways that we can get kind of confused on how those keys actually work. But all three of them are incredibly important. If you are a Christian and you think, well, I love God and I live connected, that's awesome. But let me tell you, learning yourself is not something that's just worldly or selfish. Learning yourself is an important part of a life of wholeness and excellence. Because you know what? Only to the degree that we really know ourselves are we even going to have the capacity to see our need for God. And only to the degree that we have self-awareness, are we even going to know how we engage with other people, not just from our own perspective, but from theirs. So this year, we're walking through significant portions and books of the Bible, and we're looking at how can we apply those in terms of those three keys of life. And I invite you, if you haven't already, check out the website stephaniepresents.com. There are resources there, and you can also find out about speaking engagements and other ways that you can be served to help you achieve your life of impact that I know is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. All right, we're going to jump into the Gospel of John, where we have been studying for the last few episodes, and we are in Chapter 2. You know, John has a way of writing that is both rather poetic, and yet it's very concise. It's, um, it's kind of this very unique combination of writing, and we're, we're not going to get into analyzing his writing, but it's important to note that just in the first chapter and a half, we've already had him cover and talk about some significant things, even though he doesn't spend a lot of time on them, and some of these are things that he just kind of drops in. And if we're not paying attention, we can easily miss. And so we've already talked about last week the, um, the very first recorded miracle that he does, which of all things is turning water into wine at a wedding. It's not healing someone or setting someone free from some sort of demonic oppression. No, it's just turning water into wine so people can go ahead and have this wedding that they can enjoy. And we talked about how the master of ceremonies responded to that miracle, which actually is kind of a lesson for us and something that we don't want to be like. We're continuing in chapter two today, and what we are looking at is another one of those accounts of Jesus, which is very 
well-known, and yet at the same time, this is not the story of Jesus that we create posters of, and we don't put him up in the Sunday school rooms of our churches, because how do you explain this alongside the poster of Jesus sitting down and holding children in his arms? It's kind of hard, but you know what? It's here in the Bible, and it shows a part of not just Jesus, but a part of life that we absolutely have to pay attention to. So Jesus is going with his disciples, and it's the time of the Passover, one of the most um, important festivals and times of commemoration in the Jewish calendar. This was a uh, commemoration of when they were set free out of their bondage and their slavery in Egypt, Uh, many, 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 many years before the time of Christ. And so the Passover was the culmination of this time when, if you recall from the book of um, Exodus and from the stories in Genesis and Exodus, how what happens is that the Egyptians go through these, these 10 plagues. The Israelites had some of those, but they were spared from some of the other ones. And the final plague is when the angel of death comes and the Israelites are commanded to put this um, blood, not people blood, but human blood, on the top and sides of their doors. And when the angel would see that, then the angel would pass over, would go on by that home and would not strike the eldest person uh, for death. Yeah, it's not a real great story in the sense of it feels pretty morbid. And when we, someday when we go back and, and look at that account, we can dive into all of the factors for that a little bit more. But it is now, all these years later, and Jesus and his disciples are celebrating this time. And it's a sobering time, and it's, and it's also an exhilarating time. Because it was very sobering to look back and to remember the cost of their freedom. Death was the cost of the freedom that finally convinced the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, to let the Israelites go back and, and to leave and to be escape out of bondage. They weren't just moving out of the country. They were escaping from being slaves. The cost of their freedom was death. And that is a foreshadowing of the cost of our freedom was the death of Christ. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. This is the religious and political capital of the Jewish nation. So even though they don't have the total freedom of self-rule, they still have a capital city, and it's Jerusalem. And so when the time of the Passover came, this was like wherever you might have um, a city that's hosting, say, the, fall, the Final Four in college basketball that city is going to be overrun with people coming in to attend that tournament. So, and any of the other major events that we might have. So the city isn't just have its normal population. It's going to be overrun with people who are coming to celebrate the Passover. And so during this time, Jesus goes to the temple. Now, understand, this is not just a local synagogue. This is the temple. Now, this wasn't the temple that Solomon had built because that one had been wiped out a long time before that. This was actually the second temple or the temple that Herod 
um, one of the king Herod's built. And so it's actually not been around that long. It's actually pretty new temple there for the Jewish people. So it's not just that it's the temple, which was the most holy place where God dwelt. The, this temple was supposed to hold the Ark of the Covenant. It held the Holy of Holies. This was the most sacred place for the, for the Jewish people of any place on the planet. This was the place. So again, it's important to understand this isn't just a local synagogue. This is the Holy of Holy. This is the temple where God has said, this is going to represent my presence among you. And so Jesus and his disciples go up to the temple area. Well, he's not too happy about what he finds there because what he finds there are people that are selling sheep and oxen and and other animals. And not only that, but then they have what are called the money changers. Now, if you've ever had any kind of international travel, then you know that you, you likely are going to have to have a currency exchange. I did this last year when I was traveling both to um, South Africa as well as then coming back through England. And so I had to calculate the currency exchange there. And where you went to get your currency exchanged could vary greatly in the amount of fees that you would have to pay to take the, the United States dollar and to turn it into, say, a South African rand. So people would come to Jerusalem, again, because this is the most sacred place to be able to come during this most sacred of their, their commemorations, their religious commemorations. And they would come, and they would be obligated to bring an, an animal for a sacrifice, maybe several animals. There were different animals for different types of sacrifices. There, all sacrifices weren't just the same. There, there was a whole different uh, type of categories of sacrifices depending on what you were trying to make atonement for or what you were providing as a gift offering to God. And so people would come, and everybody didn't always have an animal to bring with them. Maybe they lived far enough away that they weren't going to be able to come and to bring their sheep with them. Maybe they were engaged in a type of commerce where they were not animal farmers, and they were dependent on securing the animals that they needed from other people in order to make their sacrifices. Now, again, these aren't sacrifices that they just decide if they do or don't want to do. There are biblical laws that God had established that were thou shalt. They were obligated to appear before God at certain times during the year and to offer these sacrifices. And to not do that was disobedience to God. So we don't want to think of these um, people that are there offering sacrifice or offering animals that people could buy for sacrifice that, oh, well, you know, this was like buying a trinket when you go on vacation. It wasn't buying a souvenir. It wasn't just participating in some cultural event. This was people who relied on having the animals that they needed in order to be able to be obedient to God. These people were in a place of great dependency in order to fulfill their spiritual obligations to God. And what would happen with the many changers is somebody might come in and let's say that they had currency from a certain place and the money changers were not treating them fairly. 
They were price gouging is what they were doing. They were taking advantage that people were in these needy or even desperate situations in order to have the right amount of funds and then to be able to go and to purchase the offering that they needed. And then there was price gouging going on with the animals that were being sold. Jesus wasn't anti-commerce. What Jesus was so angry about here is watching people who were in places of dependency and vulnerability being taken advantage of by the very leaders who were supposed to have their their best interest at heart, their leaders who were supposed to be serving them, who were supposed to be coming alongside and making it easy for the people to honor and obey God. Instead, the leaders were making it so incredibly difficult. They were adding to the burdens of people to be able to follow God with their whole heart. So Jesus says, this is wrong. This is morally, spiritually wrong. It wasn't just a matter that he didn't have a preference for this or, um, you know, it wasn't just like an irritant to him. He was fighting for injustice. He was saying it is, it is morally, ethically, spiritually wrong to be taking advantage of people in these situations. So he goes over and he gets some cords and he weaves together a web. Now, it would kind of be interesting to know how that happened. Like, did he just get some cords and go sit off somewhere and people were like, hmm, okay, don't know what he's braiding, but okay, that's kind of interesting. Or did he do that so quickly and with such ferocity that people were like, whoa, we don't know what's going on here, but uh, hmm, something's, something's afoot. We don't know. What we do know is once he has done making this very practical tool, he puts it to use. Why did he have to have a whip? Why didn't he just go up and talk to people? Why didn't he try to go up and convince them, hey, y'all need to move your tables or else? Why does he actually fashion a physical object in order to carry out the justice here? I don't think that's just symbolic. I think it is... It is a representation that there are times that we need to have practical tools that we actually take physically in hand in order to be able to fight injustice in this world. It is not enough with all of the human trafficking that we have going on in this world today. It's not enough to send a tweet. It's not enough to um, just put up a poster. Yes, those things can make a difference, and I'm not denigrating anything that someone does with sincerity, but let's just be real. If at some point there's not some way to physically free somebody out of those situations, all the the tweets and, and memes and everything in the world aren't going to do a bit of good. There has to be some physical application when we fight injustice for the issues in this world. The other thing that I, can, I think we can see here is Jesus is not concerned about good PR. <laughs> I mean, remember, he's just at the very beginning of his ministry. This is not a great way to become aligned with the religious and cultural powerful leaders of the day. The people who were in charge of the temple, the high priest, okay, you talk about getting off on the wrong side of somebody from the very beginning. That's exactly what happens here. Make no mistake, the leadership in that temple, the high priest, 
and the Sanhedrin, they were benefiting from this. And they were not only allowing it, but they were probably lining a lot of their pockets as well with the proceeds from this business. There is a time to be savvy about our PR and about how we come across. And there are times that we just got to lay that aside and we have to step out to deal with something that needs to be confronted. And when this happens, his disciples, who probably are kind of standing there going, what kind of guy are we following here at this point? Because remember, this is very early in his ministry. Then what, he, what they remember is that the scriptures had said, and the Old Testament scriptures had said, because of course there were no New Testament scriptures at this point, but that the scriptures had said, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, isn't it interesting that these men, most of whom we believe were fairly uneducated men, they were not the leaders of their day, they didn't have this great social standing, and yet they knew the scriptures. They knew them enough that somebody didn't have to come along and point that out. It says that they remembered that. And that is one of the reasons that we are focusing this year on working through passages in the Bible, because it is so incredibly important that we put ourselves in a position on a regular basis to learn the scriptures, to know what's there. They didn't get up that morning and say, hmm, wonder we're going to read today. You know, I think we need to read something about, you know, zeal for God's house and temple. No, they had already deposited that in their mind. They didn't get up that day probably heading up to the temple for the Passover with the idea in mind that they were going to basically cause a riot. They were going to be part of that. It probably wasn't what they thought that day. You never know what you're going to encounter in any single day, but when you have the word of God that has already been deposited in your mind, it is there to be pulled out when you need it. Sometimes we think of Bible study as only being something that we do because we're trying to find answers for a situation or a problem that we're dealing with right now. And while that's important, it is so much better to be just be making regular deposits of the Word of God, which is living and active, into our hearts and our minds so that when the day comes that we need something then we already have it there. Well, the Jewish leaders were definitely not happy about this event. And so they come to Jesus and they say, basically, who has given you the authority to do this? I mean, was it Rome? I mean, this is a very brazen act. You need to understand, this isn't Jesus just knocking over a few tables. He is making a direct confrontation with the most powerful leaders that the Jewish people had. He's at the temple in Jerusalem. He is confronting the strongest leaders and the people that were the most revered. And trust me, they didn't just have phantom power. They had very real political, economic, cultural, and religious power. And so when they come to him and they're like, okay, uh, you got to account to for us why you have done this. Jesus makes a statement which they totally misunderstand because he says to them, if you tear this temple down, I'm going to raise it back up in three days. Well, their frame of reference leads them to think that he's talking about Herod's temple, which had taken 47 years to construct. 
And so they totally miss the whole thing. But Jesus isn't saying that to them to just try to irk them or just to confuse them. What he's actually saying is he's using that moment to plant a seed of thought into his disciples' minds because he knows at this point it doesn't matter what he's going to say. The leaders aren't going to go, oh, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. Now we can see why we shouldn't have been allowing all of this selling of sacrifices and money changing to go on. That they're not going to change their minds no matter what he says. But his disciples, on the other hand, he knows that some three years later that they're going to need to look back and to remember, ah, what he was talking about there was that his body, his temple of the Holy Spirit, would be raised back up. And so even very early on, he begins to plant these ideas for the benefit of his followers to build their faith at a later time. That's another reason it's so important for us to absorb the word of God, because we might not need something right now, but there will come a day when we will be able to look back and to remember that, to recall that, and then for that to build our faith up at that time. And then this chapter closes out by saying that during that Passover time, there were other signs and miracles that Jesus did, and these were more about healings and deliverance and and those types of miracles, and people believed in him because of what they saw. Now, I know that there's a lot of different views today on signs and miracles, and I'm not going to get into that, not because it's not relevant, but that's just not the point I want to make today. I don't want you to miss out, though, on the significance of that. You know, people will believe in Christ oftentimes based on what they see in us. What are we doing with our lives? Does, are we drawing people to Christ or are we repulsing them? And so as we wrap up this, this second chapter in the Gospel of John, I want you to remember Think about fighting injustice. Where are there injustices in in your life, in your relationships, in your community, and in this world that you may be being called to address and to speak to? You know, we have the whole phrase, you know, speak to power. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did here. Where are there times that you may be called on to stand up against the powers in your life? whether they are political, whether they're economic, whether they are relational, because there is a time to take a stand and to fight against injustice and also to absorb the word of God so that when different things happen, whether in the moment or when you need to look back and to recall something, that your faith and your belief can be strengthened and can stand strong. All right, my friend. If you haven't already, hop on over to the website, stephaniepresents.com, sign up for the Highlights newsletter, and you can also check out other resources there and speaking engagements that I offer. Remember this, you have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.